Are you ready to take your screenwriting career to the next level? If you're a new or aspiring screenwriter who feels lost or stuck in your career, the Working Writer School is here to teach you what writing courses don't. Former student Dylan Evans said, There are a ton of writing classes out there, but this course helped me work through the stuff that I couldn't find anywhere else. I feel more prepared and more knowledgeable to take on the next phase of my writing career. Writer Nicole Bennett said, After taking this course, I have a clear framework for the mindset, productivity, networking, and financial management skills needed for longevity in this industry. And Jay Burlingham calls this course the map. This course has given me a map that I will return to again and again as I move forward in my career as a writer. Use code MMIH for 10% off from now until January 31st and go to theworkingwriter.com. That's theworking, W-E-R-K-I-N-G, writer.com to sign up today. You know, making movies is hard. Making movies is hard. Welcome. This is the podcast about the struggle of being an independent filmmaker. I'm Mark Bissell, the founding host of the podcast, and I'm a sci-fi horror filmmaker, and my first feature film, The Alternate, is out right now on all the digital things that you can get movies on. I'm Liz Manischel. I'm a writer, director, producer who has made two features, Bread and Butter and Speed of Life. I'm currently in pre-production on, I guess, two. I don't know. It's confusing. We'll talk about it in a few minutes. I'm a distribution consultant who used to manage the Creative Distribution Initiative at Sundance, and I do sales. This week, we welcome first-time feature filmmaker Alison Starlock to talk about her feature, The Apology, which just came out in theaters on Friday, 12-16, and is streaming on Shutter and AMC plus right now Allison talks about how she got the film funded how she managed being a mom while directing the feature and how she managed to direct such a dark story after that we play another wonderful round of the game but first liz how are you doing today i am really overwhelmed and i want and i feel like i i feel like i'm censored and and i can't talk about all the things that i'm overwhelmed with because some of them are personal and some of them are professional but then what if you jinx the project by talking about it out loud? Or what if you jinx your personal situation by talking about it? I just feel overwhelmed and superstitious is how I feel right now. <laughs> I'm coming out very, I'm intense right now, Rick. I'm sorry I like about it. that. Bring, bring the intensity. Yeah. Let's do it. Oh, God. Can you talk about one of the things uh, in any way? Yes. Or? Yes. <laughs> For the sci-fi movie, the we were talking to an actor and he loves the script and he sent it to his agent and his agent loves the script and we're giving them an offer. We're sending him an offer like wow. today and it's a welcome offer and it's very scary in the sense of like not knowing what's going to happen, right? Like I really want him to do it and I am not doing any of the paperwork and I'm not doing any of the negotiating. And I'm such a passive part of this process, Auric. Like I, they didn't even ask me to write a letter. I wow. guess the agent had quote unquote had heard of me, but nothing like a compliment. Nothing <laughs> like, oh, I love her. It was like, oh yeah, That's I've heard good. of her. I think it was a direct quote. <laughs> and Perfect. I guess this actor watched my movie or movies, but I don't even know for sure if he has. And I'm just this weird part of the puzzle that's not really integral, but I get to benefit a lot if the puzzle is completed. I don't know if that makes sense. Oh, and yeah. it's it's stressing me out. <laughs> I I can totally relate to this. I mean, it's the same yeah. feeling I have with the movie I'm attached to now. Like, I, what I do really doesn't matter <laughs> at this stage. Right. I'm basically just like, sure, that actor sounds fantastic. Let's do it. Oh, what do you need me to do? Oh, someone else built the deck. I don't even have to build the deck. Oh, great. <laughs> okay. Perfect. I'm in it. That sounds good. Okay. 
Yeah. Casting director. I love you. It's wonderful. But no, that's super exciting, Liz. I mean, I can, I can understand the feeling of anxiety, but it's like, you know, you already got like two thirds of the process where like the actor likes it, the agent likes it. So that makes tons of sense why you didn't have to write a, a letter. Because if the actor already likes the project and then the agent already likes the project, they don't need you to convince them to read it anymore. They already read it. So, I know. guess so. But it does make me maybe similar to you. It makes me feel like really unimportant. Right. It's like, <laughs> OK, well, I mean, like, like, are we just thinking I'm a working man director who's just going to plug and play? Like, wouldn't you want to hear what my plan is for the film? They've heard of you. They know who you are. That feels great. <laughs> they quote unquote, they have heard of me. They, they probably heard me like. It's like, I don't know. They probably heard like me being overly self-promotional and uh, there's nothing to do with whatever. You know me. I'm thinking of the dark side. Oh my side God. Every you're just digging this, this like imaginary hole for yourself that doesn't exist. I dig- I'm like, digging the hole and I'm like, like up burrowing. Here and you're like, oh my God. <laughs> wow. I'm that's in my exciting. burrowing in imaginary hole. Yeah. So we'll see. So, and I think what's scary about it is a very silly, good problem to have in that if he says yes, somehow knock on every piece of wood near me and and we start building the rest of the cast based off of his name, which I think could go pretty quickly. Then what do I do about this other movie that I've been planning on making in the spring? Right. You so then make, I have you make to whatever it is first. You make the one that happens and then one you that's make ready the other first. one. After. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's a great problem. I was problem talking to, to Amy have. about this. Right, I was talking to Amy about this. Like, and I'm like, in what world will both movies go? That doesn't happen. Like, something's gonna, something will fall through of, on at least one of them, if not both. That's just like the statistics of indie film. So it's really ridiculous to worry about it. But I guess because we're doing a Patreon campaign to make this very indie film in public, then it becomes a public problem and a public choreography to figure it all out. And so that that part's disarming. Yeah, but you just push one and shoot it when it works for you in your schedule, you know, especially yeah. the one where you're raising the money for it yourself. It's like, gosh, you know, if you're lucky enough to raise the, the budget you need to shoot the movie, like you could just use more time to plan after yeah. you make the other one. So. Yeah, I don't I don't see this as a oh. problem at all. I just see it as excitement, you know. Is this name a household name? Yes. Oh, that's awesome. So cool. But I say that I'm not I won't tell anyone who it is until they reject us. I know. But until then I will, you know, if they say yes or they reject us, I will tell you who it is, not that you're like dying to know. I am um, dying to know. Yeah, of course I am. <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> course i'm trying to know i know i can't answer because you won't stay on the show and I'm, i'll probably text you no, after this but like liz will you please just tell me anyways i won't it won't jinx it i swear <laughs> that's really awesome i mean i, I don't know what what a yeah. thrilling thing you know i love your attitude <laughs> your attitude is like what a th- thrilling is not the word i would ever use like painfully scary is probably the phrase i would use but i love but even just talking about it with yorick i feel less intense and less scared because it is joyful. It could be joyful. It could be joyful. Stop freaking out, Liz. Let's move on. Please tell me something about your life that sounds much more fun than than this experience that I'm having. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, we're we're like basically trying to get to where you are with my movie. We haven't, we basically have gone through a bunch of no's, you know, and now we're like recalibrated our list to something more reasonable. And so we're going to, you know, go back out again. It just between, well, me, you and the rest of the world, you know, the, the, 
I don't think anyone on my team is going to listen to this. It doesn't really matter. I mean, and it's not bad or anything, but it's just like, you know, we got this list of all these actors the executive producer really liked, right? And so then me and the writer were like, oh, well, here's our dream list or whatever, you know, based on your list. And then basically they were like, oh, yeah, we can't afford all those. And I was like, oh, so... (laughs) And like he had like ones that he had yellowed like or highlighted that were like, okay... These I know we can get in each role, right? And so now I'm just like, me and the writer are like, oh, we're just going to, this is just going to be with all the people he knows he can get. Well, that's fine. You know, if that's the way it is, yeah. like, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to complain about that. You know, it's still a really cool cast, even with, with all those names, people that at least we have both all heard of. I don't know if everybody in the world has heard of these people, but like they're, they're enough where like genre fans and, you know, movie fans would know who they are. So it's like, that works, right? But we're having a meeting in a couple of days to talk about this and see what, what the next steps are. But I mean, I'm, I'm like crossing my fingers. I'm in your position in like three weeks from now, you know, like, you know, yeah. getting, hearing that an actor loved it after reading it through over the holidays and wants to do it and the agent approves. And that's like dreams case scenario, you know? And I mean, literally could be in our future in the next month. So like, I'm, I'm hoping to catch up to you <laughs> in, I want to know. That's what's so annoying about both of us is like, I really want to know what your list is. And I want to know what those yellow highlighted names are. Like I'm like yeah. trying to picture the name. <laughs> Kellen Lutz keeps appearing in my mind for some reason. Oh. I have no idea why, <laughs> but I was like, is it Kellen Lutz? I know who that it is. It could be anyone. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, it's someone that you and I know, but it's not necessarily the biggest name in the world, but still like a reputed, valuable actor. Anyway, yeah, we're both annoying. Maybe, maybe at some point we could share these names. I know. All our poor point. listeners are like, what are these people talking about? What actors? So Who are vague. these people? So- but that's I, I will to be. say, you have though, to be vague. You have to be vague. And I think just to put a point on, I, I don't, I don't want to appear ungrateful, I guess, as I'm nervous, I'm appearing ungrateful. I think I'm scared because if it's real for me and, and if for you, I don't know if you have these feelings, I'm then going into a prep more intense than I've ever had before because I really want to go and hire Craig Archibald, that acting, acting coach and go mm. with him to break down the script. And I really want to take classes. To, like I basically am going to go into a level of recon that I've never gone into before. And I think that's the scary part, right? Is like with new standards, you put new sta- new pressure on yourself. So mm. I guess just saying it out loud, it sounds fun, but in my mind, it sounded really scary and hard. But now I'm saying it to you. You have a way yeah. of like, even just like saying things to you. I'm like, oh, I feel better. <laughs> Good. Uh, <laughs> So now that I've said it out loud, I'm like, no, this will be fun. It is an opportunity. These are opportunities. We have opportunities, yeah. Auric. Oh, God. And, and, oh, and, if, God. and then, like, as the good thing is, like, if it doesn't happen, it's not like you don't have anything. Like, you have this other movie you're making. So, you know, in my case, like, I don't yeah. only have another project. So if this doesn't happen, I basically have to scrounge something up from scratch, you know? Well, if the thing you're writing, you're writing yeah. something. So you have that. Yeah, trying to. <laughs> good job. <laughs> But yeah, you know, so for you, it's like, oh, this thing is, it's like, it's like the the thing that could be the next thing, but then you have another thing right. that's already happening, which, which is wonderful. It's a, it's a beautiful thing, but I can, yeah. I, I, I don't want to diminish your anxiety because I, I do understand oh, the feeling. You. And if I was in your, your position, I might not be as positive. I might be like, oh my God, <laughs> X said yes. They're interested. Will they accept the offer? Will they won't? Oh God, if they do... What will happen if they don't? What will happen? Oh, God, you know. And Yeah, it's so many options. Yeah. 
Have you seen Men in Black 3? Is this the only... Re- uh, does anyone get this reference at all? Do you watch Men in Black 3? I just was started it the other day, and I was like, I, have I ever seen this? And I'm like, I'm sure I've seen this, but I just don't really re- remember it. So I was kind of watched the opening, like, thinking like, oh... I have seen this movie, but it's been a while. It's good. Anyways, it's a good. Yeah. There's a Michael Stalbarg character who can see every iteration of the future every oh, time fun. something happens. And that is how I think you and I feel in certain scenarios. It's like a perfect encapsulation of the anxiety of like this one minor thing happens. What is the infinite timeline of repercussions? And that's that's yeah. filmmaking, folks. That's filmmaking. But But in the end, you can't. You can't predict everything and you don't really know what's going to happen. And like, you know, it's very easily everything could not happen. So I found it better to like not stress over it because, you know, mm. not until it's real, you know, and then you can stress over it, yeah. you know, but just be like, yeah. enjoy the fun of the excitement of the unknown, you know, and the possibility until then, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, no, but I mean. Well, isn't it cool to have like producers who like do things for you though? That's pretty nice, right? Like, you know, you got people who I are do like making really the enjoy deals that. And, and like, you don't have to like be a part of every single email, every single conversation. You don't have to be a part of every single like, you know, agent outreach or whatever. It's like they just do it and you're like, and you get to hear. Oh, okay. That's what happened. Oh, okay. That's what happened. That's cool. <laughs> well, this is how crazy my mind is, is like, the successes are not real. They're monopoly game. Like them doing the work and them negotiating, that's a monopoly <laughs> game. And then the anxiety is very real. Like the all the things that could go wrong is real and all the things that could go right and all the things that alleviate the workload, those feel like a fantasy world. So I I think what I'm really looking forward to is a world where the two converge and I actually believe that this is happening, right? Yeah. Like you, until contracts are signed, until I'm on set, not even until I'm on set, until deliverables are put together. I don't think it's real. Other <laughs> right. Than the anxiety. Yeah, but the work is real. If you have to actually go shoot the movie, then it's real. The work is real, <laughs> but then you learn. Then you learn. Yeah, but then like, oh my gosh, you hear these stories of people making movies and getting the movie being canceled halfway through. And then it's like, oh, geez, you know, that that can happen, too. But I feel like you just you got to go into things with, a, you know, the best outlook possible. And then we'll see what happens, you know, and then just I think once it once it's in motion, treat it as it's real and the biggest, most important thing ever. And and then, you know, as long if if it goes all the way through, then you've done your best work and there's no there's no compromise. Right. But and if you're learned, like thinking, oh, grown. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like in your process has gotten better and you've gotten better as a filmmaker. But if you ch- treat things as like, oh, this isn't going to really happen. So I'm not going to really put my full energy. Then it won't happen. Mm-hmm. You know, like imagine if or she had had that, uh, uh, you know, reaction when Dean Devlin was like asking her to like, you know, pitch this her this movie to her to him or like send over her work or whatever. If she had ever like you know, acted in a way that she thought it wasn't going to happen, then she probably wouldn't have gotten it. But like, she took it so seriously. She responded super fast and that her dream movie came together, or at least my dream movie came together (laughs) for her. Anyways, (laughs) very, very cool stuff. Very exciting. But you know what also is very exciting is our Patreon page. Go over to www.patreon.com slash MMIH podcast. You can check out our weekly team meetings that we post there. 
We've got the whole back catalog of the show is behind the paywall, accessible only through Patreon at one ninety nine a month. We have put a large amount of episodes behind the paywall recently, and it's just keeping on going. We almost have all of season, I think, four behind the paywall, and then we'll have only seasons one through three available besides the current season and season seven. Although we're in season nine now, so season seven and season eight are available Season nine, we are in currently, and then, yeah, seasons one through three and half of four are available. So they're going to be less and less available. Probably by the time you hear this, it probably will be all gone. Well, actually, that's not true. By the end of the year, it'll be all gone. So we'll, we'll see. We'll see how it happens. But there's also going to be some bonus episodes on there, some other things, some fun things coming. So take a look out for that. Also, don't forget to check out Jambox.io. They're a royalty-free music and sound effects company with an emphasis on high-quality cinematic cues. Their composers have worked on soundtracks for Hollywood-level films, working with directors like Michael Bay and Martin Scorsese, and they even offer customized plans to fit your needs, which is pretty great. So use our code MMIH to get a 20% discount off your year subscription today. But without any more delay, here's our chat with Allison Starr-Locke. So, Allie, putting you on the spot real early here, can you give us the elevator pitch for The Apology? Oh, yes, indeed. The Apology is a Christmas psychological thriller. It's about Darlene, who has been searching for her missing daughter for 20 years, but to no avail. No leads, nothing. Now it's Christmas Eve. It's the middle of the night. Now Darlene is a recovering alcoholic, and now she is just about to start drinking again. She's in the pit of despair when she gets a knock on her front door. Now there's a big snowstorm outside. Again, Christmas Eve, late at night. She goes, so that's a little freaky. She goes to her front door and looks and it's Jack who is her ex-brother-in-law somebody who she used to be let's just say real close with and he comes in they start talking and then he finally confesses that he's there to tell her something very important and then they're off to the races there's your family wow amazing how many days did you shoot the film 16 principal and one day in Wisconsin for some exteriors. What can you speak of with regard to your resources, your budget? I can't, I have been told I can say under 5 million, but I have to otherwise be a bit vague. (laughs) It was far more than I've ever had because everything has always been out of my pocket. So I genuinely was like, what? (laughs) Kind of every step of the way. But that being said, for what we were making and making a film in LA, it still always felt like we were stretching and always trying to be very resourceful, of course. Is there a world where you feel comfortable with a low end of that range and that like, is it above a million? Could you it's say a, it's right? between a million and five? Okay. Yes. Thank you. So it is definitely no. believe me, respect to the micro budget filmmakers. It is not a micro budget <laughs> film, but it is a low budget film. <laughs> We all know the difference between that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. How did you come up with the idea for the film? I was fascinated with true crime stories, and I had been just reading them and listening to them for years. And then one night I had a dream, as cheesy as it is, about that knock at the front door. So I woke up and wrote it down. And then as I started to write, I realized that it was actually becoming kind of a metaphor about my experience uh, being there for my daughter. She's autistic. And, you know, the world's not so accommodating to difference. So that that experience of constantly fighting for her, constantly trying to keep everybody like thinking about her as a full person. And like we say in the movie, not just a face on a poster. And so that's where that connection started to come from. And then I just became fascinated with the dynamic. What would it be like if you were there, you know, stuck with this opportunity with somebody who did 
did this to you? What would you really want to do? You, this particular woman, would, what would she want to do? And there you go. Oh, I want to dig into that. But I'm going to jump onto this other perfunctory question. How long did you spend working on the film from that dream until its release right now? Oh, yes. I think it's important to be honest about how long these things take, even when you do get lucky and have some funds to, to make something that is not totally out of pocket. It, I started writing it in 2016. And then I continued to rewrite. I have a ten- my process is more like write a draft, set it aside, let time do its thing, write a different script, come back to that draft. Ooh, time has done its thing. And now I have perspective and, you know, workshop it with friends. I've been in a writer's group for a long time doing informal readings, things like that, so that you can start to really feel how it's working. And then in terms of development and everything like that, that started at the beginning of 2020. At the beginning of 2020, (laughs) we thought naively, maybe we can shoot this at the tail end of the winter of 2020. No, we could not. No. (laughs) And then if there is one thing you could change about the making of this movie, what would you change? What would that one thing be? I think... What would be the one thing? I think I would just have more confidence in what I already did know. I think it's more about what I could change within myself, because I think that's more what you can change anyway, you know, or on a practical level, man, more days would have been nice. (laughs) That's what we always wish for, right? More time, more time. I've heard you talk about that on the podcast before. I think it's a very universal wish. Yep. My first feature was 16 days. And then my second feature was 12 days. And I remember just being like, how luxurious 16 days were, which is an insane perspective to to have. Like 16 days is not enough time to make a movie. And I mean, you probably made an amazing one though. No, but that's exactly it. It's like, that's the thing is that we we make our movies in whatever way we can and we just make it work. You know, you go, okay, there's going to be things. Like there were plenty of things that were lost from the script because we just didn't have time. Mm -hmm. You know, it was a constantly evolving process because of that, because I was so ambitious this thing was like you know very intense emotional material lots of stunts a snowstorm in los angeles like it's an ambitious flick so it was like okay we had to keep pivoting as everyone does you know well if you're just kind of like a a stranger looking at your imdb which we were until recently right we were just researching you and we look at the timeline of your career we see a bunch of shorts and we see this feature can and you have already admitted that that self-funding was a strategy in the beginning for building your career. How do you go, this is the million dollar question, how do you go from self-funding those shorts to a multi-million dollar feature for your first feature? Yeah, this is this is the kind of answer that's both frustrating and hopefully inspiring as well because it came from a friend. So my friend, uh, one of my friends, Stacey Jorgensen, who I worked with on those shorts and I worked with on, some, on um, her first feature, I literally was second ADing on it. We've just worked together for years. I stayed home and had my daughter. She went off and became fancy film producer. And I asked her if she would read the script just to see if there would be maybe somebody that would be interested in reading it, you know? And she was like, read it and said, I want to produce it. And she is the one who, she did the classic, lovely thing that you hope you hear about and do do and see more, which is lifting somebody up and saying, you haven't had opportunities I am in a position to give you an incredible opportunity and I know you're going to do great. And she just did. And she has been my champion every step of the way, just constantly telling people like, I know you don't know who the fuck this is, but she's a good egg. She's really good. She's talented. She's good to work with and just doing that over and over again. So 
So I always say now, like when we talk about the movie, it's like, just remember, like, it's important, of course, to always meet more filmmakers to always be sort of networking, even though it's the grossest word. But I think the truth of it is really like the relationships you already have in your life and cultivating them. Because I just kind of was, I just, I thought, oh, I don't know anybody. And then suddenly I was like, yes, I do. I forgot that she kind of went off and <laughs> started working with, you know, Company X and making No Man of God and, and Arch Enemy and, you know, Mandy and all these movies. So, yeah. So that's how that happened. So it's pretty crazy. Nobody gets that kind of opportunity that I've had for this. It's insane. So it's very appreciated. Can you go a little bit more into detail on that? Because like, you know, is, is it just like, oh, yeah, here's a script. And then she's like, okay, push a push a button and then you have your budget and it's all done. Or is, is like, a, what, that, yeah. what are all the steps <laughs> that you had to go through once she decided to work with you? See, I love you guys because this is how I think as well. I'm like, no, but what are the action steps involved? <laughs> like, give me a list. Yeah. I Okay. So very fair. So unfortunately, a lot of it is, continues to be really nice story, but I swear this part's true. All of it's true. I never, you know, Allison little me, literally means little truthful one. I, I can't even, I have no poker face, nothing, but it was like, so she, so Stacy basically said, I, I want to produce this. I'm going to bring it to my company. They're going to say no, because they, you know, they're very picky as they should be. They've made some of the best genre movies that we've seen in the last 10 years. But to my shock, they said yes. To her shock, they said yes. Also, another piece of this. So then they go to to bring it to RLJE Films, who are our distributor and our financier. And they said, we have this script and, you know, would you like to do it? And they were like, yeah, I'll, I'll check it out one of these days, you know, like whatever. But then they were able to tell them that I was on the blood list right before the company committed. Now, the blood list is basically like, I don't know if you guys have heard of this. It's like the blacklist for genre scripts. So being on the blood list gave me just enough cachet for RLJE, for Mark Ward and them to read it and then take it, take it even more seriously being like, oh, yeah, OK, I've seen that she's kind of written some things. I had written like an essay and a book about Amy Sherman Palladino, like some of these little tiny things that I'd been posting, but just enough. Right. I know. True love. True love. Yes one of my heroes. But it, it and so it's like, it was just these little things that I was just putting myself out there. I, I was trying to just write whatever I could and put it out there and talk to people and just keep that going. So it was just a, just the tiniest amount of visibility for him to go, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, okay. And so then they signed on. But then it was, of course, you know, notice I said it was like the beginning of 2020. We didn't start proper prep on this film until January of this year. So this was like a long process of them because they were also trying to make No Man of God in the, and finish Arch Enemy in the middle of COVID, which was like brave front, new frontier. Amber's a friend and she was on the show uh, a oh, few years ago. She, Big, uh, I love Amber Seeley. Yeah. Oh, yes. She was so kind to me. I called her for advice at one point early in the process and she was so kind to me. And I've heard yeah, always lovely things. And I love her movie. I love No Man of God. I think she just did an incredible job like furthering the conversation about destructive men let's say and our fascination with them and obviously i share that fascination because i've made a movie about, that involves a destructive man there was a, a whole process to the casting process and everything of course when you, especially with an unknown you know writer director trying to get people to sign on to play parts in something that's not only an unknown writer director but is incredibly dark material and incredibly physical material. So the combination of this dark emotional stuff in the stunts was not attractive during COVID time. Weird, right? <laughs> 
for me, I'm like, I play in the dark. Like that's my, that's my sandbox. That's my scene. But most people were like, I want a comedy. I want something that makes the world better. And I'm like, this would make the world better. Okay. (laughs) So it it took a long time. It was a lot of that process of finding the right fits, but luckily it's like, you know, it's as cheesy as it sounds. It's like, it felt like in the end, it was like, no, this was the cast I was meant to have. This was the group of people, collaborators I was meant to have. But so it was like, constant I was writing cover letters and so I wrote our cast cover letters that kind of was like here's who I am I know you've no idea and here's why I think you would be great for the part and what I am envisioning for the film like because in some ways the script itself could could have read to some people as a little bit more straight thriller Hmm. but I really wanted to do kind of more like a Bergman thriller in a way And so trying to explain that tone to them a little bit, like having the opportunity. And if anything, I wish that can be, you know, they're personal letters, so I don't feel comfortable sharing them online. But I wish there was more guides for things like that, too, because I feel like the casting process and trying to get actors attached is so key for indie filmmakers. And there's just not a lot of information on how to actually do that. Yeah. You know, going a little bit into that answer, because Ulrich and I are are currently in the process of attaching talent in, in a similar fashion, but I think what I'm dealing with is pre-sales value cast. So with RLJ on board and you having a production company on board and it's like, are they providing financing regardless of who you cast? Is it just finding or did you have to hit like a marker in terms of quote unquote sales value for each of these actors? I 100% had to hit a marker like a, and, and my producers very kindly shielded me from the specifics of what those markers were because mm. or, or perhaps they didn't. I mean, in a way, it would be nice to just know and then I could, pick, you know, pick from the thing. But we honestly just kept kind of coming up with ideas. And funny enough, it was like the actors that we have are not somebody that I was like they were at the bottom some list they just had not occurred to us and then it was like when it did it was like oh of course you know like so none of it felt like in the end it didn't feel like a corporate decision it felt like an artistic decision and what should be there but absolutely it's like they just weren't gonna you know maybe if it had been somebody even like Amber where it's like they know that they've made films and something but I can't I can't speak to what her experience is but it just seems like it's so common no matter what level how many films you've made it's still so cast contingent it's like they're like we're gonna green light you as soon as you get your cast and you're like but the cast it's hard to green light but you know we could at least say yeah it's like so difficult but we could at least say hey this company is ready to back us if we have the cast like we can make an offer so we had that incredible privilege because most of the time you're just trying to get them to sign on with no real knowledge of where you're really going to get the money from so that was an incredibly helpful at least so you know this is your first feature can you just talk about some of the things you and and like like you said like much bigger budget than you've worked with before what were some of the things that you did differently in your process as a filmmaker that you hadn't done before and and I guess really the question is about like how did you prepare to handle that responsibility? Oh, absolutely. I just I most of what I did was I did things like I used you guys know the program scriptation. Have you been in Oh, it's wonderful. I highly recommend it. It's basically like you know whenever you've got a new rewrite or you've rewritten it yourself, you have to write all of your director notes or your producer notes or whatever into the 
the script over and over again. Well, Scriptation like just carries them. Mm. It's like a PDF kind of program. It carries them all over. But it also empowered me to go in and just write incredibly nerdy notes on every single thing. And so sometimes I would share them with my collaborators or I would just use it as guides for when I was talking to them. I also made an insanely large creative brief to start that then my wonderful partner, creative partner and, and producer Kim Sherman helped me put into a digestible like 20 page situation. But to start, it was like, there's so, so I had pulled so many images. I had written character bios for every character, extensive character bios for every character. I'm a way over preparer. So I had shot listed and storyboarded well before we were going to shoot. A lot of those went right out the window. And then I worked with my DP, Jack Caswell, who was fantastic. And we, I came over to his house and he was acting them out as I was proposing the shots. And then, you know, we're typing and putting it together. One of the biggest differences that I had never worked with overheads before. I had, that was just not something that I just couldn't conceptualize it well. And I still kind of honestly struggled with that tool on this film. <laughs> would be like, wait, so I'm like, just show me in the room. Like, what are you talking about? You know, so working it out that way. But we did that. My first AD, Cedric, he was terrific at keeping things very organized from, and basically he and Kim Sherman helped a lot with taking all of my ambitious ideas and really making sure that that was communicated well to the crew. And then I also had a lot of long conversations with Anna Gunn and Linus Roach and less long conversations with Janine Garofalo because she was like, well, my part's not as big. We've had these conversations. She's a really like direct, super bright lady. So that was a lot of what we did for prep. Yeah, there's so much. There's such a big long list of prep items, but those are some of the ones that put in my head. It was like just figuring out how to how to communicate with this bigger crew, having actual department heads because there's whole departments. <laughs> that was that was a big learning curve for me. There's still a few there's still some people on this film I've never met and I'm like that's a very strange experience. I'm used to 5 or 10 and there are people that come over to my house for dinner at other times, you know, so this was wild. I want to talk a little bit about being a caretaker and and making movies just because oh, that's I love a it. personal issue for me and sure. for Auric and I find myself guarding my time with my kiddo almost violently <laughs> like no you can't take it away from me it's mine how I don't I don't presume to think that you are the same way but I do know that you are are you took your caretaking very seriously for your daughter I mean it's very important yes. to you clearly how were you able to find a time for both or did you find yourself having to prioritize one or the other during the shoot yeah I think anybody who who's a parent and a creative, it's like, it's, it's, it's a constant negotiation. One of the big things that always helped me was thinking about what Shirley Jackson used to do. She's one of my heroes. And she, she would do, I don't know if you've ever read her, this biography, uh, Ruth Franklin wrote this incredible biography about her. And she was talking about how Shirley, especially in the days before she could afford childcare and assistance of any kind, <laughs> how she would just put notebooks around the house and she'd be cooking and writing mm. and she would be caring with her children and making making notes just I think I long ago decided that I was going to take carve out my time as best I could for those lovely dreamy you know work sessions but also accept that that was not my reality 
like my reality was those bits of times and that those experiences would be so melded. And so it's fitting that that ends up being like such a huge obsession of mine as a writer as well is to constantly tell stories about motherhood. But I think and I think we don't, you know, we certainly don't give enough credence to that challenge. You know, we don't have we could so box it up about about how parents are not cared for so that they can care for their children. But so honestly, by the time I was making this film, I was trying to set her up as well as I could to understand what was happening, but she really didn't. <laughs> like she was like, she would cheer me on, but she didn't really understand it. So she would have her struggles with it for sure. But I was also, and I never want to dis- diminish that, but I also felt like I had been home and obsessed for so long that I really was like, for both our sakes, I was like, I have to make something. I have to go and do something else or I'm not going to continue to be so much fun to be around. <laughs> you know, you need both of those parts. And so remembering that that's important. And I think the fact that she's autistic and has been through therapies and I've been through a lot of parent training about how to be there for her. They remind you a lot of that parent training that you have to keep things for yourself and it's okay. You know, like you're not going to be as good at either job without making room for each of it. So I have to admit, I just learned to be a little more selfish this year, which was pretty fun. But now that we're like, but I'm working on that balance still. And I can't imagine you ever get great at it. You just kind of just keep saying, you know, I just try to prepare prepare her when it's going to be one of those sort of seasons of sacrifice of like, mommy's going to be working a lot, you know, like right now she's downstairs making sure she's being quiet so mommy can record her podcast, you know. Oh. And I stole some time between school and this to at least give her a hug and check in with her. You know, last night, it's like I'd been very busy, you know, putting the film out and and trying to spread the good word and all. So last night, I took her to her favorite restaurant, the Olive Garden, and had a mommy daughter (laughs) date. You know, you just figure it out, you know, and it's like, and I just have to look at my time and kind of plot it out a little bit. Like you say, you, you protect it. But I feel like I have to, I have, I feel like I've gotten good at, you know, being there for her. And now I'm like, learning to protect the, the work time more, you know, what do you do during production? Do you live in LA? Were you able to like go home every night and like, you know, see your daughter or what you just kind of gone for like a period? Like how did how did that work out? Oh, Asking yeah, that, for my own 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 preparation for myself. <laughs> that was an yeah, that was enormously difficult because I was home in LA. And my husband, who was fantastic, was like, was there for her, but he had to work too. Luckily, he works from home. So it was like this ragtag team of friends and like respite care providers and like her behavioral therapist that would come to the home, everybody kind of pitching in to keep her feeling active and keep her engaged. So it wasn't just sort of like him, you know, positioning his computer so he could make sure she does not, you know, run out into the street or something. So it was a whole, (laughs) it was a concerted effort, but it was really difficult, honestly, to come home every night and try to re-engage in the family in any fashion. I would almost always miss her. I would pretty much just see her in the morning because it was like I especially because it was my first feature the learning curve was so steep this material so intense and so it was really hard to come home and try to re-engage I I think selfishly in the future I almost would want to be out of town for a month (laughs) and get to just focus because I felt like it was honestly even more confusing for her like oh I'm seeing you for 10 minutes it was a bigger thing for her, I think, coming back from mommy's with mm. me all the time and so obsessed to mommy's here every 10 minutes. I think she would have conceptualized she is on this other thing better. But that's just mm. maybe the way in her brain works. I don't know if that's a universal thing for 
most kids, but that was her experience, I think. I looked at your, I think it's even like on Twitter, but I looked at a bio and you said you're a gleeful genre bender. Yeah. And I would just love to hear more about that because I'm in the description of the film, I think you could go a million different ways and then you throw in Bergman into it. So can you tell us a little bit about how you play with genre and what, what joy you get out of that? Oh, absolutely. I love that question. Yeah, I, I really like the idea of feeling free to take whatever you your your idea in whatever direction you want to take it moment to moment, rather than looking at I must hit, you know, I mean, I went to film school, I'm a hardcore cinephile, I know how to play by the rules. If I want to play by the rules, I can do that. But it's more fun to look at it and go, you know, it would be more, it's just more interesting to me that they, you know, go to the basement and this happens instead of this other thing that maybe you would have expected, you know, like, uh, that was just something that I and that's something I continue to be interested in. So often, like, even when I would write scripts, and other people would read them, sometimes I would get these feedback, this feedback of like, well, but aren't you doing like a thriller? Or aren't you doing an action film? And I'm like, all right, like, I'm doing what I want. (laughs) That's what I'm doing. And I think having the freedom to that, I think that's keeps things surprising to the audience, it makes it more engaging for your collaborators too. the idea that you don't have to just sort of fit in the box, man. Snap, snap. (laughs) So I wanted to ask about what's happened now, like after making this movie and even like while making this movie, because like this is like a huge budget for a first time filmmaker. Like what's your career? What's the effect on your career? You know, have you got reps? Like, do you have a line to make your next movie? Like what were some of the results of going down this path? Well, you know, we only just announced the film really recently. They want, I think they just wanted it to be sort of a Christmas surprise or something, but (laughs) we ended up just announcing it. So I have nothing has happened yet. This is actually like barely anybody has even like learned that this movie exists. I have been, of course, continuing to write and start planning other films to make. But in terms of like, no, I don't have no reps. I have uh, no other films set up. I'm starting to have more relationships with other producers and things like that. You start to talk to people, but nothing that's actually like cemented. So I'm writing a slasher comedy and uh, a haunted house sort of marriage drama, family drama. Yes. And then also a very like war, I like to call it a war film, but it's a fictional war, but it's grounded. It's not a like sci-fi type fantasy Mm. situation. So again, it's like what I was saying about the genre blending. It's like all of these things that don't, I just think it's interesting almost to like, oh, it's almost like the two characters in this film. It's like Darlene and and Jack. It's like, what happens when they're put together? It's like, what happens if you're doing a slasher film, but you're making it funny, you know, and you're making, and that one's very feminist, fiercely feminist script. So it's like, how do you combine all of those, all of those things into something hopefully delicious and fun? Uh, I would like to read all of those. To extend Auric's question a little bit, like what kind of lifestyle or what kind of filmmaking? Mm, I get you. Regularity. Are you preparing yourself for? Does that? I don't even know if I'm teeing this up right, but like, are you searching for reps? Are you planning? Are you basing your next ten years off of making a living off of director's fees, or are you just doing projects that you want to do? Do you want to go to TV? What What kind of is the sustainability plan for your career? Oh, that's a really smart 
smart question. Okay, I I am definitely actively seeking reps. I'm definitely trying to start making lists of who to even try to, you know, pursue or wish for. And I I think my main, I look, I just want to tell stories. So if I get a chance to do that as a director or as a writer, that's great. But my real goal is to be a little bit, even though this word makes me sick, but it's a quick shorthand, more of an auteur. I would like to be able to write and direct my own things as much as possible. And I would rather have that creative control and that ability to kind of play in a bunch of different directions that an indie might afford me more than something, you know, never going to say no to something with a bigger budget with more, you know, if it's interesting to me, but just keeping that as my North star of like, what are my, you know, do you guys know Judith Weston? She's a, she's written a bunch of great directing books. You guys are my people. (laughs) So she's, so she, she wrote this thing that really resonated with me in, I believe it was the director's intuition. Is that right? Mm. She wrote this thing about artists should feel free to identify their obsessions and honor them. I'm paraphrasing, of course. But it's like, I love that idea. It's like, so what do I want to make movies about? So just keep moving. And, and if it's TV shows too, great. Who doesn't love a good meaty TV show? Again, I'm such a character-based writer. It's like that's TV is king for that sort of thing. So I could definitely see that being a very satisfying experience for me too. But But just keeping the ability to continue to tell stories about those obsessions, about how, you know, about the mental load, about motherhood and how, and parenthood in general, how complicated it is, about relationships, about the tragedy of gender expectations, Mm. about violence against women, about, you know, racism and sex, just basically why we other each other, you know, all of those kind of great big themes. As long as I get to work with those, I'm very flexible otherwise i think all of that could be there's so much fun stuff to tell stories about within that area so what was one thing that you learned or it can be more than one thing from making your first feature like something that you, that happened that you learned from on on this shoot that you're gonna make sure to do on your next shoot oh yes i think the big thing that comes to mind is just and it sounds so self-helpy but i swear it's true it was just listen to my own instincts Uh, like I kind of said before, there were so many times where it's my first feature and I hadn't made something in a while. I'd been home with my daughter and I had a lot of really smart, experienced, creative people around me. And I sometimes I listen to them when I should have been listening to myself. I think, you know, people, advice is always, you know, almost always incredibly well-intentioned. It's coming from somebody's particular experience, right? They're trying to help you. But there would be so many times where I'd be like, that doesn't seem right. You know, that doesn't, or it doesn't seem right to what I want to do here. And I think I'll know better next time to listen to that a little more strongly, you know, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Again, that's kind of... Uh, is there an example you can give that you feel comfortable sharing or can vaguely reference? Well, this is, I know, because of course, you never want to throw somebody under the bus, especially for, again, trying to help. Yeah. You know, <laughs> like I had all these incredibly smart people trying to help me. But just things like, like, this is really boring, but it's just true. Let's decide on our communication system and keep it going. Like, let's all honor the glory of a Google Doc, for example. Like, can we just do stuff like that and and have everybody on it? You know what I mean? And I'm sure that's a universal frustration. But it's like, just stuff like that, where it's just like, can we, and like, you know, I wish we had had the days that we had a good powwow, like a good, forgive me, that's not a good term, a good, like a team meeting, quick one even, 
at the beginning of or at the end of each day, yeah. the next day went so much better usually. So it was like, yeah. I would definitely do that next time. Have a team meeting besides your safety meeting, because that's not, that's like a pump up. Hey, make sure you realize we're going <laughs> to have a big bar that goes from here to there. And we're going to have a big mat. So you can't go down. <laughs> the like, so that's like a technical meeting. And we're, t- you know, I'm talking like, let's have a little team meeting, your main keys, you know, or even just your DP and your producer and talk at the beginning and each end of each day. That is definitely something I'm going to honor the heck out of next time. I think that'll be, yeah, yeah lovely. I also learned that like partway through my first feature that like, oh, like the safety meeting is great, but the end of the day recap with like the three or four key people so so crucial yeah and you can have a lot of and you know it's like we found ways to have that meeting where people were still you know where our lovely crew was tearing things down and putting oh yeah for safety like you don't have to super extend your day it's just so that it's like well you know like let's just uh, taking that time you know yeah like what are we what what were our wins what were our losses today and what what can we do differently tomorrow or what are the our concerns so we're not going home with them you know yeah going home with stuff and it's like weighing on you and you're writing notes to yourself and you're trying to you know where you're on frantic phone calls on the drive home that was the other bitch is that i live an hour from our set and so it was like yeah that was the other thing is Take advantage when people let you sleep on their couches or guest rooms if they live closer to your set. Be good about that offer. Yeah, because I only did that a few times and I regret that. Yeah, my bro- my fantastic brother-in-law and his, and his lady had me stay over whenever I wanted. And I was like, why didn't I do that more? I just, again, it was like, I felt the pull of my daughter. I wanted to still be engaging with her. But yeah, it's a tricky thing to get that right, you know? Yeah, I can only imagine. And I only fear for my future of trying to figure that out on the next project. <laughs> I think it's time for our final five questions. Yes. I'm just going to jump right in. What's the best filmmaking advice you've ever received? I, I think the best filmmaking advice was with regard to working with incredible actors like Anna and Linus, somebody at that level, was just remember to always keep it simple and about the work. Let yourself be vulnerable. Just remember they're just they're also just searching to try to find the, mo- the most truth of the moment and don't worry about complimenting them and all that kind of stuff. Just just be there in the moment. What's the worst filmmaking advice that you've ever received? Oh, again, I'm so hesitant to say worst, but I think it's, I think it all ties into just feel, you know, like basically like compartmentalize things more. And instead it's like, no, just keep talking to everybody about everything you're thinking about, about the film, be really clear as soon as you have the idea and just, and, and I also say to them, like, I'm open to your idea, but here's my starting point, as opposed to sort of waiting a little bit more for their starting point and trying to meld it, if that makes sense. Be clear about your vision. Do you have a goal as a filmmaker? It's so cheesy, but I want, I want to be one of the voices for the voiceless. Like I want to make make movies about stories that you don't hear as much about but it's stuff that's a little bit in plain sight that's why I keep like to joke that I'm obsessed with domestic horror the idea of like I was very happy that John Dielman was at the top of sight and sound because you know Miss Ackerman she put that camera she made you watch her make coffee for like so long you know it's just uh, but uh, so that's kind of one of my chief things is just thinking about the hard things putting them on display and hopefully doing it in a way that is entertaining for folks i'm not in, interested in necessarily putting somebody through something just to like you know for sport <laughs> for sport <laughs> if you could go back in time what's one piece of advice you would give yourself carve out time to be 
what you're interested in to be to write, carve out more time to write and carve out more time to push yourself out in the world. I think I spent a lot of time feeling very imposter syndrome, like, why would anybody care? You know, nobody really wants to read stuff. Everybody says it's dark or whatever. Who am I? Or I'm too nice, you know, or whatever else. And it's just like, just, you know, that you should be more cutthroaty or something. I don't know how to put it exactly. But it, I think just spending more time putting myself out there in the community of filmmakers and not feeling like I didn't belong because I did. We all do. Once I started saying, why not me instead of just why me that again, I sound like a self-help person, but these little like <laughs> sayings, it really helped unlock my brain, you know? So I really yeah. like that. Is making movies hard? Oh, of course. It's so hard. It's so hard, but so is honestly, so is everything else in life pretty much. I mean, it's like <laughs> life is a hard you know, what is it the Dr. King quote? It's like, life is as hard as steel. It just is. And once you accept that, then you can just go, okay, if it's going to be hard anyway, what's our thing? You know, what do we love that's hard? So yeah, movies is hard. Parenthood is hard. It's all worth it though. Glory. So fun. Last thing, where should people go if they want to check out The Apology? Where should they follow you, follow the movie? Where can they see it? All that stuff. Oh, thank you very much. Yes, you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram. And I just joined TikTok, but I'm learning how to even use the thing at Allison Starlock and you can see the apology in theaters and you can rent it or buy it. You can watch it on AMC plus and you can watch it on shutter, which is a personal favorite. Wow. Boy, I love shutter. I was pretty psyched to be on shutter. And that's December 16th. I forget if I've already said that, but I'll just say it again. December 16th. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> Do you love making movies as hard and you want to listen to more episodes? Jump over to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash MMIH and you can listen to the entire back catalog of episodes for just $1.99 a month. That's an additional 300 episodes that aren't on iTunes that you can listen to whenever you please. But without any more blibber blabber, back to the show. Liz, what do you remember about our talk with Allison? I loved her. I think she's so cool. <laughs> like, I think I was like, oh, this is like a... F- it was the first time we interviewed someone where I was like, oh, I could see myself very easily being friends with her, right? Like, I could I could envision like a world where we go to coffee and hang out together. Not to put that on you, Allison. I'm just saying like she felt very relatable. <laughs> and, and I really felt like her story was so exciting and her character being so relatable it was like this wonderful conversation of like this too could happen to anyone right if you work hard enough you could meet someone who believes in you and really helps build a pipeline for your work and i would say there the thing that was most prominent for me in terms of memory and our conversation was her really owning that she needed creative space away from her family and not feeling guilty about it. And like, I need, I need that. I need to learn from someone like that. And that I was just really glad that she was so honest and vulnerable about that. What did, what were your thoughts, Alric? I think I realized talking to Allison, like how much I like talking to filmmakers who are parents because it gives yeah. me hope. And gives me comfort that like, you know, I will have a future as a filmmaker and as a dad at the same time. And I just, I loved hearing her whole story about how the movie came together, how like, you know, she kind of got lucky in a lot of ways, which is, you know, but also I don't want to diminish, diminish her hard work, but like she had that friend that she sent the script to and they were able to put it through a pipeline and everything. And she still had to pitch and she still had to do all the stuff. But, you know, I just thought that was a really interesting story and 
kind of incredible for her first feature to have that kind of experience. I, you know, I haven't seen the movie, but like just hearing about like the dark content that she had, that the movie's about and the way that she had to approach it. I thought that was really interesting, you know, with the seriousness and the kind of the respect to the source material that she went into it. I thought that was interesting, but yeah, I just thought like she seemed very down to earth and, you know, very like, I don't know, kind of aware that like, yeah, I don't know, like for her first feature to be such a big deal, like she she didn't seem to be like blase about it, like, oh, like matter of fact, like she seemed to like be really understanding that like she got like this really great opportunity that she made the most out of, you know? So, yeah. yeah. She was really cool. Thanks, Allison. If you're listening, you're the, thank you for You're the everything. best, Allison. <laughs> Can't wait to see what you make next. Is it time? It's time. For the game. Okay. Do you want to <laughs> do what good. you do it better? Do you want to do it? <laughs> It's time for the game. <laughs> All right. This is uh, every week. Uh, now we've been doing this for months, uh, but it was a fairly new segment where Eric Toms, our producer, sets forth a indie film quandary, quagmire problem for one of us this time. It's for Ulrich. And Ulrich has to hear this question for the first time and figure out how he will respond as an indie filmmaker. So here's Eric's question. A rising reality TV star has managed to secure financing for their first film. It's a modest budget, yet still considered very low. You've been offered to direct as a gun for hire. The reality star is a very bad actor, and the film will not be very good, but it's work, and they're offering just below your minimum. Do you, A, take the job and go through the motions in the hope this won't affect your career as a serious director? B, pass on the job and wait for something more artistically satisfying. C, really dive in and try to save the film by tapping all of your resources and putting in crazy hours. D, other. What do you do, director? What do you do? Well, did he say specifically that the script wasn't good or just that the actor wasn't good? I This is my favorite sentence. It says, the reality star is a very bad actor and the film will not be very good. That's all yeah. he said. Yeah, but that doesn't mean that the script isn't good. So I, I think he what I would say do... say about that, yeah. In, in, in my... my, my interaction is like be very positive be very excited you know and then like ask to see the script read the script and then ask what kind of level of you know input you can have as the director on the script mm-hmm. right and then i think from there you basically i like read the script and say okay like is there a good movie in this script like is there a way that we could take what we have and turn it into something interesting provocative different exciting that would be fun to make and something that I don't want to watch. And if, if all those things end up being yeses and they're like, Oh yes, you can have creative, some creative control. The reality star really wants to work with you on this. Like they'd really partner to like make this the best movie possible or whatever. Like assuming, let's say they wrote it too. Then I would go into it and be like, Hey, like, let's just do this, man. Let's like, let's just go together. Let's see what we can do. And I think in working with somebody in that way, you'll be able to find their strengths. Because, like, if you're a reality TV star, like, you're not a totally wasted person, right? Like, I think, like, reality TV <laughs> stars, like, they have something about them that makes them interesting to watch. Like, you know, whatever it is about them, they're not, you're not on TV if you're not compelling in some way. Like, I know this only from watching very little reality TV that I watch, you know, over my wife's shoulder or at friends' houses or whatever, or when I was younger or even working on stuff like there, these people 
Like they have things about them that make them engaging. So like, I think what you need to do is like find what makes this person engaging, whatever it is, even if it's a small thing and then orchestrate the whole movie around that engaging aspect of them, whatever it is. Maybe they're charismatic. Maybe they're funny. Maybe they have like some silly catchphrase that people like. Maybe they're, I don't know, like really good at something, whatever it is. Like find out whatever that thing that makes them different is and then orchestrate the whole movie around that difference. And and then you're going to have a good shot of at least making something entertaining. And I think it all to me comes down to like the ability to restructure. Like if you're allowed to restructure and rewrite, then I think it's worthwhile. But if you can't and you're like being handed something and you're like, you have to make this as it is and you don't think it's going to be good, then I have to walk away. So that's kind of like a, mm-hmm. you know, kind of a two handed answer. But I think that's the way I would look at it is like if, if it if it if it's only one thing and you don't think it's going to be good, then you can't do it. But if it's like something that you know, could be molded into something that you like, then start the journey. Rev our engines. Let's go. But what about you, Liz? What would you do? Wow. You really are an optimist. I would pass. <laughs> I'd pass on the job. I'd wait for something more artistically satisfied. I think the clues to me are they're offering just below my minimum. It's a modest budget, yet still considered very low. And <laughs> Eric telling me the film will not be very good. So what I get out of that is what what you get is what you put into it, right? Like you'll learn your craft, you'll work, you'll you'll get to develop a new skill set. That being said, you know, if they're not hitting my rate and the money is not compensating me for the lack of artistic integrity that I would normally want to uh, surround myself with. And I'm not saying reality TV doesn't have artistic integrity, but it feels like this film feels like a compromise across the board. If this were a really good script or if this were a reality star, but she or he were a really good actor or they were a really good actor, you don't have that. You have compromises, constant compromises. So I'd rather go into, you know, work my day job, get paid my day job to work in indie sales and distribution and write something else and fundraise for something else than work on this. And I was thinking, you know, I love what you're saying about reality stars being compelling. I watch a lot of reality television and are used to and these are not good people. These are people who <laughs> said, I'm going to sell my soul to the media to get attention. <laughs> like, that's what they that's the bargain that they signed up for. And I don't know if I'm like, that sounds great. I want to work with you. Like, that just feels really unfun to commit years of my life to a, to a person like that. So unless they were like... <laughs> I don't know, unless they unless they're reality star for like really interesting reasons. Like it was best charity reality show and it's someone who owns a charity and you're like, oh, I'll support you. Other than that, no, I think a lot of these reality people are not not good people. So I don't want to hang out with them. That's well, me. I, I, I should have just said like if if uh, if Eric had said and they're a bad person with bad morals <laughs> or whatever. Then I would have been like, oh, yeah, not doing that. But I I think like all my answers with the caveat that they're a nice, good person, you know, who I would like to spend time with. But I mean, I think that's a big part of it, too, because, you know, you can't really work with somebody for long, long periods if they're if they're not someone that you get along with or that you respect, basically. Like if you don't respect them, then it's like 
yeah, it's really hard to work with somebody in that way. Well, I'm saying the very nature of what a reality star is, is it unredeemable. And that I, you see, can't I, respect that. <laughs> this, the headline is Liz thinks all reality stars are terrible people. I, 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 I you know, be. having actually met some, you know, and, and worked with some, you know, I don't, I don't feel that way. You know, I think like I haven't, make- I've never met a reality star. So I, you know, I, I'm working from a dearth of experience here. I mean, you know, and I'm like, I think they're good or bad people on everything. Right. But like, I think there's some people who, you know, are just doing it because they enjoy it or because like they want attention, but who like, I don't think I'm like, I'm not going to judge somebody because they want attention. Like that's not like, you know, to me, like a deal breaker in their character necessarily. So I don't know. But anyways, I think it all kind of depends on those specifics. You know, I do enjoy your answer of like waiting for the right thing because th- there's something to be said for that too. But I think from, from my perspective, I'm thinking of it like I've, a, I've never gotten paid to direct a movie before. I've only made one movie. I want to make more movies. And then you don't really get to make more movies by turning down movies. <laughs> right. So, you know, I mean, maybe you do. And like, I think there's, there's plenty of examples I'm sure where people have turned down things and gotten something better, but like, you know, I think it all just kind of comes down to like, you know, do you believe in this thing or do you not? Right. And so like, I think that yeah. in the end is, is the deal breaker. Good question, Eric. I like it. I want to hear what other people would say. What would you do? Would, I, would you guys side with Liz and just turn it down and wait for something else? No. Or would you try to find the goodness in it? You know? No, no one else is as cranky as I am. But if you are, for some reason, you think you are as cranky as I am, please contact us. You could send us a question, comment, or suggestion to podcast at makingmoviesishard.com. If you like this show, you can leave us a review on iTunes. Check us out on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter at MMIH Podcast, YouTube at Making Movies is Hard Podcast. I want to acknowledge that we're really making an effort on Instagram and we're animated text and we're adding stickers and it is exciting. So please join us and follow us. <laughs> On Instagram, we will follow you back. Check out the International Screenwriters Association. The ISA is an organization designed to connect writers with filmmakers through the programs that they offer. Head on over to networkisa.org to sign up for free for all their amazing resources. Thanks to Allison Starlock for coming on the show. Thanks to Sam Anaya for, from Katrina Wan PR for setting this up. Thanks to our editor, Jeff Brymoot, for doing the editing. And thanks to our producer, Eric Toms, for being awesome. Thanks to all of you for listening and talk to y'all next week. same pretty much which is good yay okay here we go allison star lock let's do it our house is a mess come on in i'm amber wallen internet comedian plant queen and host of your new favorite podcast fly on the wall okay that's pretty (laughs) presumptuous to assume that this is going to be their favorite podcast by the way like come on amber anyway that wasp that you just heard interrupt me is my husband and co-host benjamin wallen also a comedian and i host people at our home i have a great wine collection in my cellar well, you it's mean cellar. the mini fridge it's a mini it's fridge, a mini yeah. fridge new episodes of fly on the wallen drop every wednesday listen in as we discuss relationships books and keeping our sweet baby kid alive while we make laughs on the internet subscribe to fly on the wallen wherever you get your podcast Yes.